Hey, it's Michael, and this is the Kintsugi Podcast. I'll be back in a minute with today's conversation about resilience. But first, if you're interested in creating a better life, having a better career, please visit kintsugipodcast.com and grab your free workbook on how to have a better life. In it, you'll discover tips and routines so you can find the energy for the things and the people who matter most so you can create a better tomorrow and create the life and career you desire. Today's conversation about resilience is my TEDx talk that I did a few years ago. It'll give you more insight into my last bad day story and the idea we're spreading. You go where your eyes go, or maybe we go where our eyes go. My TEDx was a private event. That's why it's not on TED.com. It was in front of 1,500 people from Deloitte Consulting in Las Vegas. I was both excited and nervous, and I hope you enjoy it. And if you have a question about my TEDx, or anything else related to resilience, go to kintsukipodcast.com and leave your question, and I will try to answer your question on a future conversation about resilience. On July 10th, 2001, I was at a company offsite meeting in New Mexico. It was a lot like this meeting. And yes, we went to New Mexico in the heat of July. I do believe we got a really great deal on the hotel. And if LinkedIn was a thing back then in 2001, it wasn't, nor was Facebook. You could have checked out my profile and seen that I was the marketing director for my company's flagship drug. I was 33, married seven years, and I had two wonderful daughters under four. Life was good, filled with possibilities, but I was stressed. I was too busy juggling all my roles, father, husband, son, friend, athlete, busy career, you name it, I thought about it, except not the stuff in the present. I worried about what happened last week. I worried about what was gonna happen next week. That first day of the offsite, unremarkable. The next one, totally different, a new beginning. One that showed me that we go where our eyes go. I also consider it my last bad day. I decided to bring my bike out to do a couple miles before the meeting began, avoid the hotel gym. And I accomplished both of those. But then on the morning of July 11th, my morning ride, I was rounding a bend in the road and a white SUV was coming right at me. The driver had crossed the center line of the road and going 40 miles an hour hit me head on. I remember the sound of me hitting his grill, the sound of me hitting his windshield, the screech of his brakes, as I got tossed off his hood. My Iron Man watch I was wearing broke off and flew 25 feet the other way. When I regained consciousness, the EMTs were there to greet me. They were fantastic, absolutely amazing. But I knew I was critically injured. I could feel it, the pain was intense, I couldn't move, but I could also tell by the facial expressions on the EMTs, but I didn't know how badly hurt I was. I would later learn that I had injuries that ranged from, relatively speaking, simple cuts, bruises, scrapes, to a fracture of my right shoulder, my right femur, my right tibia. My left femur shattered. When it shattered, it lacerated the femoral artery. That made it life and death. I remember as I waited for the medevac to take me to the trauma center, vividly remembering 
stay awake, Michael. I didn't want to go to sleep. I was going back and forth into consciousness. I thought if I fell asleep, I would never wake up again. I wanted to see what was going on too. And I wanted to feel like I had some type of control, as funny as that sounds. And I also remember asking the EMTs, hey, how's my bike? <laughs> Which is a funny question, except if you're a cyclist, that's a really serious question. Again, only one, probably another cyclist can appreciate. But I also remember telling myself, hey, Michael, if you live, life will be different. After my first surgery, I spent five days in the ICU. I don't remember all those, th those days, but my wife tells me I told her to buy Amazon stock. <laughs> Just for reference, it was $11.50 on the day of my accident. We didn't buy it. <laughs> I've let that go. <laughs> but it gets better. One morning she came in and I started interviewing her for a job on my team. 45 minutes, and at the end, I told her, thanks for coming in, I'll get back to you. <laughs> so that was a big mistake. I'm not sure if she has let that one go. But as I came out of the ICU, I started to learn about my accident and the seriousness of my injuries, and I was told, hey, Michael, you're gonna have a lifetime of limitations. These knees are gonna have to get replaced maybe multiple times. You'll have a life of dependency, other health concerns. As trauma experts, they had seen my movie before and they were trying to temper my expectations. The funny thing about it, in a weird way, is just a few days ago as I waited for the medevac, I was frightened to death, but I was hopeful that life would be different. And now with this prognostication, all I saw were limitations. And since we go where our eyes go, I started to become angry, fearful, worried about my future. As my emotions boiled, I became revengeful. I wanted to get back at the driver. He harmed me, therefore I will harm him. Tit for tat, eye for an eye, I thought it was only fair. And I had a lot of this anger built up. I finally let it go. And I knew that there would be a different possibility. And what I realized after I let it go is that even people in authority, people who are responsible for our care, can influence what we see when we're not mindful of our choices. They saw limitations and therefore so did I. I didn't blame them, their intentions were pure, but I often wondered if they saw a different possibility, would my early days of my recovery go differently? Now I eventually went back to New Jersey and went into my third hospital. I remember getting wheeled into that hospital room. It was massive, bigger than any room I had previously had. And then I later learned why as I got into the room. I had all this technology, all there to support my three new roommates, all three of whom were quadriplegics. Two were learning how to drive their wheelchair by just using their breath. In that moment, I realized I was no longer the worst off. I sort of came face to face with the reality that my accident could have been a lot worse. Those first few nights, I cried myself to sleep. My tears were a mixture of emotions and feelings, but a lot of gratitude because my three new roommates helped me see what I could still do. Simple things that we take for granted, like using the restroom independently. And I also could get out of my bed into my wheelchair, and like my bike, my wheelchair could take me places. I could explore, I would have some sense of the day, some control. And so I decided to do a new ritual, create a new ritual, because we go where our eyes go. So I woke up early every morning, got out of bed into my wheelchair, and rolled myself to a quiet place in the hospital. 
there I would just pause, take a deep breath, do some stretches, some strength exercises, and think about my day at hand. My new ritual gave me some clarity. I finally saw that I could be defined by how I responded to my accident and not by it. It fueled my recovery. Eventually, I got out of my wheelchair and back on my feet. But even though I was back on my feet, I knew I still had a long road to go. A lot of hurdles to overcome. One was getting back on the bike. And I wanted to get back on the bike because I just wanted to feel normal. But I was scared to death, one of the traffic, but also just facing how much road I had in front of me. Sort of like losing weight, right? You want to get on that scale, but yeah, you sort of don't want to. Ignorance is bliss. So since we go where our eyes go, I looked away from my bike and just focused in on my safe rehab routine. And then I later learned that sometimes we need a challenger to see different perspectives, different possibilities. And my challenger was my physical therapist. She laid down an ultimatum. I was not happy about this. She told me, Michael, you can't come back to therapy until you try to get back on the bike. And I was pissed. I was like, you can't do that, Laura. I'm the patient, I'm the customer, and I learned in business school that the customer's always right. <laughs> and she's like, oh, no, 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 I can do it, and I'm doing it. So I paused, took a breath, collected my thoughts. And that weekend, my family and I drove to an industrial park to take my first bike ride since my last bad day. The first few laps were a little wobbly, my balance was certainly off, my leg length difference definitely noticeable, but I felt the freedom that I felt like when I learned how to ride a bike for the first time as a kid, it inspired me. So I decided to leave the industrial park and head for the street. And within a matter of moments of getting on the street, I could feel something coming up behind me, fast, big. So I look behind me, and the universe is so freaking cool, it sent an SUV. <laughs> and this is how, really, like how cool the universe is. It made it white. I was like, you gotta be kidding me. So I did what I would not recommend to any cyclist. I held my breath, I closed my eyes. I probably closed my eyes before I held my breath. My heart raced, I gripped those handlebars as tight as possible, and I just waited for that SUV, and then it passed. I opened my eyes, I exhaled, and I saw what my therapist saw, a road filled with possibilities. Cycling was no longer a goal, it was now a reality. And it was the first pedal stroke to getting back to racing my bike. Now, the perception that we go where our eyes go wasn't just limited to my journey back on the bike. It also appeared when I returned to my busy career. The job that I so wanted, the big promotion, the one I moved my family to New Jersey for, which is a big deal. No offense to people in New Jersey, but I live there now. It's all good. And even though I wasn't 100%, I went for it. It happened just a few months prior to getting back on the bike. And I really thought it was mine. I thought I had checked every box. I thought I was a shoe-in, but I wasn't. I didn't get the job. Instead, I got a lateral position. I was not happy. I wasn't thrilled. At first, I just focused in on the opportunity lost. I was embarrassed. I was mad at myself for being arrogant in the interview process. And then I decided to take a page out of my recovery and try to take a look at the benefits of the new role. And once I changed my perspective, that new role, that lateral position, became the catalyst that got me to the executive boardroom four years later. Many people over the last 15 years have asked me, hey, if you could do it over, would you wish your last bad day never occurred? And the answer is absolutely no. I love it. 
On July 11, 2001, I told myself life would be different, and it is because I changed my perspective that opened up possibilities in every aspect of my life. Yes, it was painful, sometimes more painful than I can really describe, but what I learned is that nothing changes until we do. And the opportunity to change exists in all of us. We just need perspective changes to point our eyes in a different direction because ultimately we go where our eyes go. So now it's time to pause, maybe take a deep breath and notice where are you looking? Thank you. Thanks again for listening and being part of my Peloton. If you haven't already, please subscribe and share this with someone in your Peloton. And until our next conversation about resilience, have fun storming the castle.